Well, as always, it's wonderful to see you here to worship our Savior together. Uh, It it is uh, never long enough when we spend time together in the Word and in worship. Thank you for singing to our Savior this morning. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that last Sunday we finished our study of a long section in Hebrews. We finished chapter 7, a great study there on the priesthood of Christ. And with the end of chapter 7, that gives us an opportunity, a good place just to take a short pause for a few weeks here in the summer and to focus on a few other things and then come back to chapter 8 in August. Over the month of July, we'll have several unique opportunities to hear some other men in our church preach as well as next Sunday, our first missionary, Charlie Cunningham, will be with us. He's going to explain uh, the ministry that he'll be doing in Turkey and as also bringing the word to us. So if you can be here next Sunday, we'd love to have you. They'll be, he and his wife will be here and you'll have a chance to interact with them. They're, they're headed out of country at the end of the month. Uh, So it'll be a while before we have a chance to interact with them again in person. But I know you'll be praying for them, and we're excited about that opportunity. But this morning, what I I wanted to do is turn our attention to a topic that I think will tie in well with Charlie coming next week. Charlie will be speaking on a a passage dealing with, with missions. But this morning, I thought it would be good for us to talk about our role in this local church. What has God called us to do in the local church Uh, Several months ago now, I was invited back to our sending church, Countryside Bible Church, to preach at their conference, and they asked me to speak on this topic, your role in the growth of your local church. And I want us to talk about that this morning because several truths that that, uh, I covered there, I want us to understand here to apply these same truths at NBC. You know, church growth is a phrase that is ardently avoided by many Christians in our theological camp, and and not without warrant. There are reasons why we avoid such phrases. Unfortunately, in broader evangelicalism, this idea of church growth has, has become very popular to the point that churches are doing almost anything to get people to come in the doors of the church. Churches have given away things like TVs and video game systems. They've invited famous celebrities who claim to be Christians to come and to speak. They've changed their style of music and of preaching and the way they dress all under the banner of trying to get people to come in the doors. They want to be attractive to the world. And many Christians, thankfully, have seen the bankruptcy of that approach, that that's not the biblical approach to church. But because of that, we're now skittish and suspicious of the phrase church growth altogether. And we have to be careful there, though, because if we go too far in the other direction, we misrepresent the truth of Scripture on the other side. After all, Jesus Christ himself says that he is committed to building his church. In Matthew 16 He says this, beginning in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock that is upon this confession of Christ as the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so if, if Christ has said, I am committed to building my church, then surely we can't say that church growth as an idea on the whole is wrong. 
And yet, at the same time, we may be tempted to say, well, it makes total sense that Jesus would be committed to building his church, but what does that have to do with me? After all, God is sovereign over salvation, and so it makes total sense that he is saving his people for himself and thereby building his church. But can we biblically legitimately talk about a role that Christians have in the growth of the local church? And the truth is, absolutely. And here's why. Because while God is sovereign over salvation, and he has indeed chosen his own before the foundation of the world, and they will be saved, he's also chosen the means by which they will be saved, which is the preaching of the gospel of his son. And so he has has sovereignly ordained both, both those who will be saved and the process by which they will be saved, which is, of course, the preaching of the gospel. And so this morning, what... What we have to do is bind ourselves to the scriptures. It comes back to what does the Bible say our role is in the pursuit of the growth of of the church? What is his plan for the growth of the church? And what are his methods? What what are these methods that he has uh, given to us? And so this morning we're going to define what a biblical understanding of church growth is. And then we're going to look at what does the Bible say our role in that should be? So this is admittedly more of a topical message, but we will root ourselves in several key passages and handle those in their context. And I think by the end, you will see the value of this. And really, we're going to answer two questions. The first question is, how does Christ grow his church? And the second question is, how do Christians participate in church growth? We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the second question But we have to answer this first crucial question of how does Christ grow his church? And so let's look at that question together. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you know that the Bible speaks of the church with several different illustrations. It refers to the church as the bride of Christ. It refers to the church as the body of Christ. Also, we see the church compared to a field, and we see the church compared to a vine with branches. But I want us to see another illustration in Ephesians chapter 2 in which the church is described as a building. And let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, the book of Ephesians, of course, is written by the Apostle Paul, and here in chapter 2, he's talking about this wonderful reality that God's broken down the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile, that in Christ, he has brought us all to salvation only through his Son. And so he's talking about this process now of how he binds us together as God's people. He refers to us as Gentiles in verse 19, as now being believers who are fellow citizens with the saints and even members of God's household, he says. But he doesn't describe us as members of God's household in the sense of people living inside the house. No, instead he describes us as the physical components that make up the house. We're the bricks of the house, he says. 
Christ functions as the chief cornerstone. The whole church rests on Christ. Christ is the support of the church, and he, he defines the direction of the church and what it is to be like. All of that's laid out for us in Scripture. Also, in addition to that, he mentions the, the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation of the church because it was through the apostles and prophets that Christ gave us his inspired words in the New Testament. So really, through the perfect work of Christ on the cross and his inspired words, we now have the foundation of the church. So the church is built upon those realities. But notice how he describes this process now at the end here, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now this illustration is built around the idea that we as individual believers function as bricks in this house. Bricks that are added to the foundation of Christ the chief cornerstone and the revelation that came through uh, the apostles and prophets as also part of that foundation. It's important to, to realize during this time when builders were building a stone building, they didn't use mortar like we do today to fill the gaps between those stones. Instead, they did the painstaking work of crafting those stones by hand until they perfectly fit together on their own. They were in perfect sync with one another with no need of mortar. And that's the idea here. We're being fitted together, he says. The Holy Spirit is taking each believer, and because the Spirit indwells each one of us, he fits us together intricately and perfectly. But the key here to understanding church growth and how this connects together is by looking at the verbs in this verse. Notice, first of all, the words, is growing, this building is growing, and secondly, are being built together. The building is growing, and these bricks are being built together. Both of those verbs are in the present tense. Now think about that. The present tense, we've talked about this before, in Greek has this idea of an ongoing action, something that's continuing. The first verb here, is growing, is an active verb in the present tense. The second, are being built, is in the passive, but both of those are present tense Verbs. So what is the significance of that? Why does that matter? Well, it's significant because it reveals to us the right way to think about church growth. Because the Bible describes the growth of Christ's church here as a process in which God builds his church in such a way that it grows in two ways. It's going to grow in breadth, that is, new people are added to, saved and added to the church. But also it's going to grow in depth, and that is each of those individual people, once saved, will be sanctified so they themselves are growing. That's the idea here. It presents this language of believers being added to that foundation continually. So new bricks are being added, and the church is growing in breadth. 
but those bricks within the church are growing and maturing, and so they're growing in depth. So don't picture a building with nice uniform bricks where they all look the same, but picture this building where you've got a a massive one here and a medium one here and a small one here and a massive one here because each of those bricks are growing and expanding. That's the idea. That's the proper way to think about church growth. These bricks are described almost as living organisms so that they themselves are growing. Now that's significant for us because it should start to frame in our minds how we think about the church and how we think about Matthew 16, 18 when Jesus says, I will build my church. What is he talking about? Well, obviously he's talking about growing the church numerically, if you will, that more people will be saved, but he never intended for our minds to stop there. That's why we can't just simply do our best to get warm bodies into the building and hope that they get saved. That's not, that's not Christ's plan. Christ's plan is, yes, to save his people, but then to grow his people in holiness. So when we talk about our role in church growth, we've got to think more holistically than just new bricks added to the foundation. We've got to think about those bricks growing in holiness. So that brings us to our theme. This is really what we're going to be considering this morning. Every Christian must pursue the growth of Christ's church in both breadth and depth. Every Christian must pursue the growth of Christ's church in both breadth and depth. So now that we've looked briefly at question number one, we're going to camp on question number two. How do Christians participate in church growth? And when you look at the scriptures, you can really boil this down to two big categories, two roles that we play in the growth of the church. The first role is this, commit to Christ's commission. If you want to be part of the growth of Christ's church in the biblical sense, then you're going to have to commit yourself to Christ's commission. We can't talk about church growth and not reference the Great Commission. The Great Commission, I realize, is likely familiar, hopefully familiar to you, but let's look together at Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20 with fresh eyes again this morning. Jesus, right before his ascension, says this, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it's important to understand, first of all, that this commission applies to every single Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, then there's an application here for you. Yes, he gave this to the apostles and those there with them, but this was never meant to be only for the apostles. It began with them, and then it's been passed on to each successive generation of Christians after them. What this means then is that if we're in Christ, this commission ought to be a defining factor in our lives. It, is, it, it means that when you think about the different roles you have in life as a, a husband or a wife, as a parent, as an employee, as a son or a daughter, as a person living in, in a neighborhood, in an HOA, whatever it is that God has put you in, understand that fundamentally, you are first a Christian. You're first a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so what this means is that as you think about those things, you should never see yourself just as a businessman, just as a homemaker, just as a husband or wife, just as a parent or a grandparent, but as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills those other roles while being primarily a follower of Christ. So when we think about how crucial this commission is then, it means we need to understand it. And we have to understand what is the command? What's the primary command being made here? And the command is make disciples. That's the command, make disciples. You know, many focus only on that word or primarily on that word go as if the word go in verse 19 is the primary command. But actually go is not a command at all. It's it's a participle, grammatically. It's, it's a descriptive term that, that is mo- uh, modifying this command, make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean we, we aren't to go. It means the going is assumed. We are going. All of us are on the go every day. It is interesting, though, as we think about that word go, we know that this is in the Great Commission. Most of you probably could have quoted this to us without even reading it, and yet, How often do we live as if that verse begins, sit and wait? Ever think about that? Sit and wait, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Obviously, by beginning with this descriptive term, go, therefore, there is to be intentionality. That if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, making other disciples of Christ, it's going to require intentionality. It doesn't mean necessarily that every Christian has to go out on the street corner and every Friday night, but it does mean that every Christian should be prayerfully intentional about the people that God has brought into their life for the sake of the gospel. The word go assumes that we are going, but going to do what? We're going to make disciples. Now, and when we think about the fact that the emphasis falls on this command to make disciples, there's some interesting and important implications. First of all, it reminds us that evangelism is only part of the Great Commission. It is part, but it's only part. Because notice the command is not go and make converts. It's go and make disciples. Kittle writes in in um, his lexicon, Jesus does not seek to impart information, but to awaken commitment to himself. To, to be a disciple is to call people to, to know and love and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him with their life. It's not simply to pray a prayer or to agree to a list of facts. It is a life-altering decision to follow Christ with the totality of your life. And so we can't allow ourselves then to look at the Great Commission only through the narrow lens of evangelism. Because if you notice, even here in this Great Commission, we have the emphasis of both the growth of the church in breadth, that is new people, and in depth, that is those people growing and maturing in Christ. Because having said, go, he says, make disciples, and as we'll see, we're going to need to teach them all things that he has commanded. But it's important that we stop here just for a moment because we really can't go any further without asking the question, are you personally a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
If, if we were to ask you to define what is a disciple, how does a person become a Christian, would you have defined that simply as they need to pray a prayer, they need to ask Jesus into their heart, they, they need to say yes to these five questions? Or would you have said to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to understand that you are a sinner and that you can do nothing to make yourself right in the eyes of God and that what you need desperately is someone else to take the punishment for your sin on himself. That's exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus has come as the God-man. He's lived in our place, living a perfect life, and offered that life as a sacrifice to God on the cross, giving his very life to pay for our sins. And then he rose from the grave on the third day and is alive even today. The Bible says that the gospel is a call to repent of our sins, to turn from our sinful way, and to follow wholeheartedly the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the facts of the gospel, yes, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, born of of a virgin who lived and died and rose again, but not simply believing cognitively, but believing in the sense that we now want to drop our following of ourselves to follow after Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a disciple. So before we talk about making disciples, ask yourself, are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you determine the answer is no, then even now in your heart, repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. This is the good news. This is the, the commission to go and tell people this, that they might be disciples and follow the Lord. But then having done that, we are to baptize them and to teach them all things that Christ has commanded. Notice those two participles, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, if you're thinking about this, those two descriptive terms insinuate the need for the local church. Because what we're doing in baptism is a person is publicly professing their faith to the world by, in baptism. And then after having brought them into the church, we're teaching them all things that Christ has commanded so that they might grow. So that they might be a brick that's expanding not only in knowledge but in maturity and in obedience. And so this sheds a new light on Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now we're beginning to see what he's doing there. And that also plays into the end of the Great Commission because don't miss the promise that Jesus tags on at the end. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean? It means that we don't go out alone. It means that when you share the gospel and when you disciple and, and you fulfill the great commission, Jesus Christ is with you when you do that because it is he ultimately who builds his church. He gives the opportunity. He's the one who gives you the boldness and the strength. He's the one that causes it to bear fruit. He really does it all, but he allows us to be tools in his hands. Now, how should this affect the way we live out Christ's commission. If we're to be people who are committed passionately to the growth of Christ's church, well, simply it means this. We're going to be active in participating in making new disciples, evangelism, and we're going to be actively participating in helping the disciples God's brought to this local church to grow in their faith, that they might follow him more faithfully. So let's break that into its two parts, and let's talk for just a moment about evangelism. We think about our role in 
the growth of Christ's church in breadth, we have to understand that, again, while God has sovereignly, in his gracious love, chosen those he would save before the world began, the gospel is clearly a gospel that is to be preached No one's going to come to saving faith apart from the gospel. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Later in the same book, Paul would go on to write these famous words in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The bottom line is that in giving us the great commission, God has sent all of us out as his witnesses to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we start talking about evangelism, I I think it's easy for us to think only about the far reaches of the world that we ought to go to to Africa and to to Indonesia and places like this. And obviously we do need to go to those places. But if you think about it, in the Great Commission itself, Where did Jesus first tell them to begin? Think about this in Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Now listen to this. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, where does that begin? Where are they first to start sharing the gospel? In Jerusalem. Where were they at the time? In Jerusalem. So, Judea and Samaria is the surrounding area immediately beyond Jerusalem, and then everything outside of that would be the remotest parts of the world. And this has been the pattern since that time, that our first responsibility is to be faithful here in this location and then just beyond that and then to the world. And so obviously as a church, we want to be involved in all of that. That's why we have a missionary coming next week to go to the remotest parts of the world. But understand that in the New Testament, the majority of Christians didn't go to the remotest part of the world. Some did. Some were set apart for that. They were gifted for that, and they were sent and supported. But everybody else was faithful wherever God planted them. And the gospel moved forward, not just by those few who went out onto the frontier of the mission field, but by those faithful Christians who shared the gospel day in and day out where God had placed them. And so let's start by considering our own local context. I want you as an individual to consider your local context. So let's start very locally. Let's talk about the people under your roof. Let's talk about your house. Are there lost souls living under your roof? And if there are, how intentional are you to share the gospel with them and to live the gospel before them? If you're a stay-at-home mom, you have a gospel ministry to your children. For, for those of you who have children who are not saved, you're to share the gospel with them and to pray for their salvation. 
For those who have children in the home that God graciously has already saved, you have a ministry of discipling those children who are under your roof. So mom and dad, don't underestimate the eternal impact that you can have and should have by God's grace in the lives of your kids. You know, it's easy for us, even families who choose to homeschool, we have to admit that you can waste that time. You can waste that opportunity by being in different rooms of the house all day long and never truly interacting with your kids in a way that's beneficial. And so regardless of your schooling choice this morning, realize you have a ministry to your kids to share the gospel and for those who come to Christ to disciple them. Well, let's move outside the walls of our house. What about your neighborhood? Are you intentionally building gospel relationships with those that God has sovereignly put in your neighborhood? Have you ever thought about why did God place that particular couple in that particular house on your street? Well, I think we have to say at least in part, part of the answer is because you live there. And he would intend for you to have a ministry in the lives of those people. So ask yourself, how much intentional effort have you made to get to know your neighbors, to love them, to care for them, with hoping to open doors by God's grace to gospel conversations? And the list goes on from there. Beyond our our house and our neighborhood, what about your extended family? What about your associations through work and through extracurricular activities, your kids' teams and things like that? What about the person that sits next to you on the plane? What about your server, your waiter that comes to your table? What about the visitor that you meet on a Sunday morning here as you're passing by? How intentional are you to to pursue gospel-centered conversations that you might be an evangelist to share the good news of Christ? You know, many times when it comes to evangelism, we tend to pray for God to give us gospel opportunities. And you should do that. Don't stop doing that. But right on the heels of that prayer, pray for gospel-centered eyesight, for God to open your eyes to see the opportunities that already exist all around you. So many times we're praying for opportunities and what we're really picturing is someone coming and knocking on our door and begging for us to share the gospel with them. God may do that. If a Mormon knocks on your door, they've knocked for you to share the gospel with them, okay? But outside of those, most of the time, it's not people knocking on our door. It's us being faithful to bring them into our homes and to get out into our yards and to spend time with those people to get to know those that God's brought into our life. So start sharing the gospel with those that God's already placed in your life and then go from there. Let me say, if you don't feel equipped to do that, the elders and I are discussing an evangelism class, hopefully this fall, to offer if you'd like to go through that to be better equipped to share your faith. But if you're nervous about sharing your faith, you don't have to wait for a class. All you need to do is go back to the Connection Center. We've got a bunch of gospel tracts. Fill your pockets with those and just make a goal to pass one out. Just start with that. And then make a goal to pass two out in a week. And then three out. And then make a goal to to talk to somebody, talk them through that gospel track. But just, you've already got the tools. If you're a Christian, the Spirit's inside of you. We've given you the tools to start that process. And then we want to help equip you even further. So we'll talk more about that class as it approaches. But get busy sharing the gospel as you have opportunity. 
Let's talk about a second role, though. Not only are we to commit to Christ's commission, but as we think about the other aspect of the, the growth of the church, we need to commit to Christ's church. Commit to Christ's church. You know, we live in a culture in the United States that's been so damaged by the seeker-friendly movement that it's created this mentality that we come to church for self-fulfillment and for self-entertainment, that that's what church is all about. And the effects of that kind of thinking have been detrimental to the, the health and growth of Christ's church in its depth. Because remember, Christ is committed not only to the breadth, but the depth of his church. And Christ has also laid out a clear pattern for how the church grows in depth. We went through this when we talked about the, the eldership series. But let me just remind you of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. This is God's plan for growth in the church. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now this passage describes the depth aspect of the growth of the church. This is Christ's plan for growing his church. First of all, verse 11, he gives gifted men to the church. He gave the apostles and the prophets who laid down the revelation that we have for the church that we preach week in and week out. Some are called as evangelists. That office is more of what we would call a missionary. When we send Charlie out next week, that is that's more of sending out an evangelist who's going to go to the further parts of the world to plant other churches. And then he gives pastors and teachers, elders in the church, in each local church. And their role, he says, is to equip the saints for the work of service, primarily through the gift of teaching. Equip the saints. And then he says, equip them to serve for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The way the body of Christ is built in maturity is the leaders of the church teach the word of God and equip the people in the church to use their gifts. The people then use those gifts to serve one another in the body. And through that process, the body is built up, it's healthy, and it grows in its depth. This is the plan. But in order for that to happen, each of us have to be committed to that plan and to follow that plan. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why do I come to church? Why do I come? Why do you come on Sunday mornings? Do you come to church primarily expecting to receive or primarily expecting to give? Do you come only to receive the service of others or do you come actively prepared to use the gifts God's given you to be a blessing to this local body? Now, don't get me wrong. Every time we come to church, we receive. We, we are blessed to hear the word. We are, we're blessed by the fellowship. We're blessed by the service of other people. So we receive every Sunday. But our focus, our, our motivation for coming is not primarily what we receive, but what we can give and how we can serve for the building up of the body of Christ. Come to church with the mentality of how can I be a blessing to others in the name of Christ this Sunday? How can I use the spiritual gifts that God has given me to be a blessing in this local church? So as we meditate on that, I, I want to just take a moment and get very, very practical and look at 
very specific ways in which we can be involved in this local church for the sake of of serving and building up this body. Six practical commitments. These are not rocket science. You probably could have come up with these and more. But as we think about living out this second aspect of committing to Christ's church, here are six practical commitments. Number one is very simple. Join. Join the church. You know, one telltale sign that we're sitting on the sidelines of the church rather than really diving in is a refusal to join. And, and some people push back on the idea of church membership altogether uh, because they say, you know, we don't find that in the scripture and so I, I'm not comfortable joining the church. And if you mean by the, the, the fact that we don't find it in the scripture, if you mean that we don't find a registration form or an official class or something like that, absolutely, you're right. We don't see a specific process laid out necessarily. But what you've overlooked in your study of the New Testament is the fact that local churches um, and, and pastors and elders of local churches knew who attended each church. And we see that in, in a, several ways. We, we don't have time this morning to do a whole message on church membership. Maybe we will at some point. But notice just a couple of passages. First of all, notice the command to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what Peter says. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Now, that phrase, shepherd the flock of God among you, is very instructive because it means that each local elder team is not tasked with shepherding all Christians. They're tasked with shepherding only those that are connected to their local body. And so it makes sense then that each local group of elders has got to come up with some kind of way of identifying, hey, you're one of the sheep that's among us and you're not. And it's really important that we do that because Hebrews 13, 17 says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account as those who will give an account. So when he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, the elders ought to be trembling at the thought of that because we understand that attached to that is this fact that the elders will give an account for how faithfully they've done that. So it it behooves us then to know who is it exactly are we accountable to God for to shepherd and to care for and to equip and to teach and to train. This is really important, especially in an area like ours where there are 100 churches within a 10-mile radius and people pass through those churches week in and week out trying to find the right one, which there's, that's fine. If you're here this morning trying to find a place to land, that's a process. We get that. But we understand as elders that there's a group of those that come every Sunday morning who have already said, we're, we're officially attached to this body. We, we want to be shepherded in this local body. And it's important for them to know that, for us to know that. Not only that, but the members of local churches in the New Testament were known We could go to several places to see this, but in your own time, just read Romans 16. Read the end of Romans, and notice how many personal names that Paul mentions that are a part of the church in Rome. It's not just one or two. It's a laundry list of people that Paul knows of people who are members of that church. 
It's because the people in local churches were known, and often when they had to move to another city, that would mean they'd have to go to another church, and they were sent with a letter from their sending church so that when they arrived, uh, they would be able to connect with the church there with the affirmation of the church that sent them. This was normal in local church life at the time. So obviously, in our context and in, in 2023, we have to come up with processes for how are we going to do that to identify those people. But the concept of knowing who's in the church and officially joining a church and saying, I'm going to be in this local body is very, very much rooted in the New Testament. So practically, join the church. You can sign up online to do that at our next membership class, and we'd love to have you. But beyond that, a second commitment is simply to grow. Commitment number two is grow. So before actively participating in helping others to grow, you need to first ask yourself, am I personally committed to growing in my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Let me ask you, are you serious about your faith? Are you serious about growing as one of those bricks and maturing in your faith so that you are being sanctified? Are you studying the word of God? Is that a regular part of your daily life? Are you meditating on the word of God throughout the day, memorizing scripture and hiding it in your heart that you may not sin against him and thinking on the truth to fight sin and to grow in your love for Christ? Are you humbly inviting the input of other believers in the church to speak into your life, to help you grow, to walk alongside of you? These are the ways that we grow in the faith. In the church, as elders, we desire to, to help with that, to, to, to create ways in, in, for us to be in the lives of one another and to be equipped and to equip others. Uh, practical ways, things like partners and joining a small group, coming to equip, and, and not just the second hour, but coming to equip and hearing and learning there. Going through the teaching seminars that we do, even if you don't desire to teach, but just to learn more deeply how to study the word attending men's discipleship and women of the word. Bring your kids on Wednesday night to youth ministry. Bring your kids to NBC Kids so that they can sit under that ministry, but participate in the life of the church as a way of growing yourself first and foremost. Then we'll talk about how to pour into others. You know, the elders, we've prayerfully piece together these different ministries of the church under the umbrella of these passages of how can we faithfully shepherd the people here, equip the people here so that they can grow and then be a part of helping others to grow. So take advantage of those opportunities. Commitment number three, serve. Serve. You know, it's easy to walk into any church and just assume that everything's already being done. I mean, if you come uh, to, to service and you get here just in time for service, you're like, man, this place is a finely tuned machine. It's all set up and it's nice and, and I'll just come and, I'll, and, and they don't really need me. But understand that kind of thinking is simply not true. Trust me, we need you. And think about it this way. As a church grows, each time a new person comes, 
There's a new soul here that needs to be served, that needs to be discipled, that needs to be equipped and encouraged and, and, and loved on and shepherded. And so the more people that attend a local church, the more people that are needed to serve in that body. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, understand the Bible says God has given you a spiritual gift, and that spiritual gift is to be used in the context of the local church. Just think about a passage like 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each one has received a a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This passage reminds us that every single one of us has a spiritual gift, if you're a Christian, and every single one of us is to obey the command to employ it, employ it in serving one another. This passage is very helpful because it breaks spiritual gifts down into two big categories. They're speaking gifts and they're serving gifts. Both of them are essential to the life of the church. And so get involved and use the gifts God's given you. And if you don't know what those are, one of the ways we find out our gifting is just by jumping into different places, serving, uh, doing our best and using those gifts. And the body comes around to say, hey, man, you're really good at that. Thank you for that. Or that was really edifying. Thank you for the way you, you do this or that. And it starts to affirm the areas in which God has gifted us. But remember, in the passage that we read in Ephesians 4, it's not just the equipping of the elders that causes the growth of the church. It's the equipping of the elders and the people serving And that together, that combination is what Christ uses to grow his church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So what that means is, is that your service in this church is one of the primary ways that Ephesians 4 happens here in this local context so that the church grows in maturity and in depth. So the obvious question is, where are you serving? Where do you serve in the church now? And if you don't have an official place to serve and you, you want to talk about that, just you can come talk to me after the service or any of our elders and, and leadership. Or if you want to send an email, send an email to staff at northlakebible.org. This week we'll get that. We'll talk with you about where you might can get plugged in. But start serving and using the gifts that God has given you. But I also want to say another word about serving. Because so many times when we think about serving in the church, we only think about serving on specific ministry teams. And the thought is, if I'm not on a ministry team or if I'm not scheduled to serve this Sunday, I don't serve. Understand that, that we don't see ministry teams in, in the New Testament, right? That's, a, that's something that we've done to try to make it easy for people to get involved and to know what's expected of them in those roles. But you don't have to be on a ministry team to serve in this church. In fact, Serving in the church is much more about the way you think about the church than it is your title or your role in the church. You serve the church not by simply being on a ministry team, but by coming to church having prayed and prepared your heart to be a blessing to the people here. 
Serving in the church requires that we simply come every Sunday with a ministry mindset that I'm coming to be a blessing to somebody else, to build them up in their faith, to to get to know them, to pray for somebody, and I'm not leaving until I've served somebody in that way. And so you don't have to be on a team. If you're not scheduled for that Sunday, know that you're scheduled for every Sunday by the Holy Spirit to use your gifts in this church. It just requires us to think the right way about why we're coming here and what we're coming to do. Let me encourage you, don't come to church looking to rush in and rush out, but come early and stay late. And come early and stay late because you're committed to being involved in the lives of the people here. Come with the the mindset that you wanna meet someone new, that you wanna encourage someone that's sitting by themselves, someone that looks down, you wanna take the time to ask the questions to get to know what's going on and then invest in them. Stop, pray, and spend time together. I guarantee you, if you come to church with that kind of mentality, it won't matter what ministry team you're on or not on, you will be serving in the church. And that's the kind of mentality all of us need to come with, a self-sacrificial, others-focused, Christ-centered perspective. So let me encourage you even today, don't leave today until you've taken time to speak to someone on purpose for the purpose of getting to know them and encouraging them in their faith. There's a fourth way that we can practically be a part of the growth of Christ's church in depth, and that is to pray. Commitment number four is to pray. One of the most effective and practical ways that you can serve this local church day in and day out is by committing yourself to fervently pray for the leadership and the membership of this church. Let me just say, don't underestimate the effectiveness of prayer because prayer springs from the fact that we understand that the growth of the church in both its breadth and its depth is dependent ultimately on God and God alone. We don't have what it takes to grow this church. It won't be through my preaching. It won't be through, through, our, through our giving, through our service, or whatever it is ultimately that causes the growth of the church. The Lord will use those things, but it's God who grows the church. And so when we humbly pray and ask God to do that work that only he can do, that's the right posture to have, the right mentality to have. And God uses that then to do what he says he will do in growing his church. If you want to ensure that this local church remains healthy, that the leaders in the church remain qualified, humble servants, that the unity of the church is preserved, that we continue to love each other and serve each other and fight for those things, then we need you to pray. We need you to pray for God to do that supernatural work in us. On your own time later, go and read Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Um, there and see Paul's prayer for the saints and mimic that kind of prayer but commit yourself to pray commitment number five a fifth way that we can participate in the growth of the church is to disciple disciple you know sometimes I think we make too much of discipleship in the sense that we think you know if if you haven't been to seminary almost then you can't disciple you've got to be a theologian to disciple anyone in the church and that's simply not true When we think about what discipleship is at its heart, discipleship is simply one committed follower of Christ encouraging another committed follower of Christ to follow him more faithfully. That's that's really what it boils down to. Now, we've created some ways to help those relationships start, things like partners. If you haven't done partners, it's a great way to get 
into a relationship with someone to begin growing in your faith. That's not because partners or, is, or some program is, is discipleship in totality. It's just an avenue. It's a tool to get people together. But you don't have to do a program to be involved in discipleship. Discipleship essentially is coming alongside another Christian and where there is ignorance of the truth, teach them the truth, and where there's a sin, call them to repent and walk in obedience. And as you do those things lovingly with other people in the church, people grow and people are discipled and they flourish in their faith. Let me ask you this. Who in this church would say that they've grown in their knowledge and obedience to Christ because of their relationship with you? If the Lord took you to heaven today, who in this church would greatly miss that relationship because it so encouraged them to grow in their faith? There ought to be a big gap when the Lord takes any of us out, not because we're significant, but because we're running hard for the Lord and we're intentionally bringing people into our lives that we might be a blessing to them and to help them grow in their faith. And if, if you say, you know what, I'm really not involved in discipleship relationships and I've, I've always struggled to get into discipleship relationships, it might be because the sixth and final commitment has been lacking. The sixth commitment that we can make to help the growth of the church is fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship is often overlooked as an essential in Christian life. But God has designed us as believers to live intentionally on purpose with other Christians. That's how the Christian life is to be. And so if you've never discipled anyone in the church, it could be one of the reasons is perhaps you don't live in regular fellowship with other Christians in the church. You know, fellowship means a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. So it could be association, communion, fellowship, or close relationship or ways that that word can be translated. But essentially, it boils down to this. Fellowship is a shared life with other believers. It's a shared life with other believers. And we, we see the clearest image of this in the early church, of course, in Acts chapter 2. A very familiar passage. Let me read this to us. Acts 2, beginning in verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So right after Pentecost, you remember, thousands of people come to Christ really in an instant, and that builds this momentum. More and more people are coming to Christ every day, and Christians begin to live life together. They're, they're soaking up the teaching. The apostles are, are bringing the word day in and day out. They're, they're spending time together. It describes them going house to, to house, taking their meals together. They're, they're praying together, even giving up of their possessions as needed to help those in the body that were less fortunate. And so this, this idea of fellowship became immediately important to the local church, and it's remained that way. This is one of the fundamentals of Christian life. But you know, Christians today, I think as I, as I boil this down to why do we struggle sometimes with fellowship, I think one of the main reasons we struggle is when we view fellowship primarily as a, 
as a reactive activity instead of a proactive activity. We're all waiting for someone to invite us to do something. You know, why does everybody always get to go to lunch and nobody invites me? What, how come they're always going to people's house and I'm not? You know, I would have loved to go gone to that event or this or that or the other. We tend to look at fellowship that way. And when we do that, bitterness grows in our hearts towards others. It can create disunity in the church and jealousy in the church. And that's because we've got it all backwards. We don't come to church waiting anxiously to be invited. We come to church anxiously excited to invite someone Come having prayed of who is it we're going to have in our house today for lunch? Who is it we're going to spend time with? You know, how many times realistically in a month can we have someone in our home? So that's, that's two times, that's three times, whatever that is. Fill them up. Start inviting people. And when the first person you call can't come, that's okay. Call somebody else. There's a lot of people here. Somebody's going to say, yes, come on over and spend time together. But that's how we have to think about fellowship. Fellowship is coming to church looking to live life with other people and to think about God's people throughout the week and to go out of your way by God's grace to involve them in your life but we get in trouble when we simply sit back and wait for other people to do that for us but this is a call to be proactive so let me encourage you make a goal if you're married I encourage you to sit down with your spouse later this afternoon or this week and prayerfully consider together how can we be more intentional to involve people in our lives from the church. Who are we gonna have over? Who are we gonna invite next Sunday to lunch? Whatever it is. And it's not about spending money. If, if, if money is, is tight and going out to eat is, is hard. I remember Rocky Wyatt from Countryside telling me they would have people over. He was a youth pastor on a youth pastor salary, so they had people over and had PB&J. And he's like, and we served it shamelessly. This is what we can afford. We just want you to come to our house. It doesn't matter how much money you can spend and how much, how nice your house is. None of that matters. It's about the heart of spending time with people and loving God's people. So do that even today, but make some goals. And as we wrap this up, I want to encourage you to make goals uh, primarily in the two areas that we've discussed on the whole. So I want you to think about evangelism And I want you to think about discipleship. I want you to ask yourself, how intentional am I truly in sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it? And how intentional am I truly at pouring into other people to help them grow in their faith? Think through those six commitments. What are the ways? Where are the gaps? Where are the holes? Has there been some selfishness in your pursuit of these things? Some jealousy, some bitterness that needs to be confessed. Confess those things and then run hard for the Lord in sharing the good news of the gospel with the lost, but also helping other believers as they help you to obey all things that Christ has commanded. And as we're all committed to this, this is how we see a healthy church, a thriving church, where the people are growing, not only by the number of people that are coming to the faith, but as each believer is growing in sanctification. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a, it's a, it's a high calling in many ways. We recognize, we, we just confess, we're selfish people. We We value our time, we value our resources, and often we use them selfishly uh, if we're not careful. And God, we just ask that you would produce within us, each of us individually, a a Christ-centered love for others that 
causes us to go across the street and talk to our neighbor for the sake of Christ, that causes us to get people into our homes and to use our resources to be a blessing to them, that causes us to stay and to have real conversations because we genuinely love others and we want to pour into their lives and take the time to get to know them. God, we realize that this is ultimately because of what you've done in us. You selflessly, humbly sacrificed yourself. You became a servant to us when you deserved to be exalted above the heavens. You humbled yourself. Help us to humble ourselves for your sake and for the sake of your people. God, we pray for North Lake Bible Church. We pray that you would help us to be a healthy church, a thriving church, not just because we've got people coming in the doors every week that are new, but because we love the people who are here and because we desperately want to see them grow in Christ and to wrap them into our lives that we may live life together. We pray as we do these things by your grace, you would use it to bear much fruit for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.